Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everybody, this is Steve. I just want to let you know that for all the latest on our podcast, uh, hit us up at EILF Movies. That's everything I learned from movies on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, we're also on Patreon if you want to check that out. But our homepage is with the Age of Radio Network at ageofradio.org slash everything I learned from movies. And if you're looking for some amazing art, check out my wife's Etsy page at untidyvenus.etsy.com. All kinds of great stuff there. Also, follow us at PodCartFest, that's P-O-D-C-A-R-T-F-E-S-T, for our periodic art and podcasting festival that we're going to be hosting. It's, uh, it's actually pretty cool. Check it out. So yeah, on that note, let's get to the show. Everything I learned from movies Helps to make life a little bit groovy With a one last plot holes a gratuitous boobies It's time to get busy With your friend Steven Nick Powell plays second in European Martial Arts Championship and was a London fencing champion before performing stunts in over 100 movies, including Batman, Nightbreed, Braveheart, Judge Dredd, Goldeneye, and The Mummy, then revolutionized the action genre when he was the stunt coordinator for The Born Identity. Then he got into directing with Nicolas Cage classics Outcast and Primal. So what's next for Mr. Powell? Let's find out. Hello? Uh, hi there. Can you hear me? Oh, we yes, can hear yes, you. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, great. Okay, I'm just trying to make... I was just trying to get headphones that actually work right now because everything's <laughs> changing. I think we're good. As you said, it was uh, not a not a visual recording, yeah, yeah, so no, I'm, uh, see, uh, if you want, we can turn off our video too. It might help. No, that's the, okay. I, I'm just uh, going to start so because I just finished the workout, so I just came straight up to the. Uh, so uh, I knew you didn't need. Uh, I knew you didn't need me to look presentable, so. <laughs> Yeah, say we're just in t-shirts and stuff. Yeah, no yeah. big deal. I was saying we, we just chopped down a tree in our yard. So. Yeah. <laughs> ah, That's how we spent right. our morning. So nice. So. Nice. Excellent. Well, Mr. Powell, thank you so much for joining nice us. Uh, I'm Steve. This is my wife, Izzy. Hello. Nice to meet you both. Uh, it's it's you. pleasure to meeting you. Um, I guess first off, if you just want to let us know like uh where you grew up and uh, you know, how uh, how Mr. Powell kind of started, I guess. <laughs> um, I I grew up in the Midlands in uh, in England, sort of normal childhood, you know, sort of everything standard. And uh, basically, I left school at 16 to pursue engineering uh, for a couple of years. Um, and then I got a place at university sort of to do a master's in engineering and mathematics. And uh, I realized at that point, I was 18 at the time, I realized I didn't want to do that. I had no real desire. I'd always wanted to act. So I took the opportunity to, to audition for a few drama schools in London while I was waiting to start university in engineering and I got into one. So I, uh, I basically gave up engineering and went to drama school, um, trained for a few years in London became an actor. And while 
I was doing some acting in a show. One of the guys doing some acrobatics in the show that I was in um, was training to be a stuntman. I'd never really considered it, but as a teenager, I'd done martial arts and uh, at drama school, I'd done quite a lot of fencing and really enjoyed it. Um, I was more of an athlete at school than a sort of academic, really. So I had a lot of a background in um, a large background in, in sort of physical activities. So I thought knowing that acting can be a very difficult profession um, and especially difficult at the beginning when you're, when you're trying to make a living and there's so many actors out there that have just come out of drama school. Um, I figured the stunt work could be an extra string to the bow. So basically keep myself in the same profession um, and do something that I enjoy at the same time, maybe making more contacts and things for the acting side. And for a few years, I was acting and doing a little bit of stunt work. And then gradually the stunt work started to take over um, to the extent that I, I was offered a contract at the National Theatre um, when I'd started out relatively, relatively early on my acting journey. And I realized that I couldn't actually afford at that time to, to sort of pay my rent and take the job at the National Theatre. And I did just sort of 29 days, I think, in my first year as a stuntman, and I earned double what I would have earned in a whole year's contract at the National Theatre. So I basically decided, let's give the uh, stunt work a little bit longer. Let's see how it goes and uh, put a bit of money in the bank and then I can still act and then I'll get back to acting full time once, I've, once I'm, uh, you know, a little bit less sort of economically challenged, shall we say. But um, the, the acting sort of, I never really, never really went back to it. I, I did occasional acting jobs as a stuntman, um, which was a, it was a great asset for me because a lot of the time, you know, there's a small role in a show, a TV show, a small movie, and they want someone that can actually do the actual fight or the stunt itself so they don't have to have a double for them. It can be seen in the same shot and everything else. So I was lucky that I was one of the very few stunt guys that could actually act at the time. Um, so it was it was good for my career in, in, in both both areas. Um, from an acting point of view, I got a lot more physical. And from a stunt point of view, I had the acting ability and the technical side from having trained as an engineer. So it kind of gave me a good leg to stand on at the beginning. Excellent. Uh, just out of curiosity, like uh, you, you mentioned being a stuntman kind of pays more. Is it like three times more, 10 times more, at least in the beginning? Um, well, if I remember correctly, Obviously, it was a long, long time ago. I'm ancient now. Um, I, I started off, the, I think the wage at the National Theatre was around the same as a very basic stunt day. And, and it was rare that you got a basic stunt day. You were usually getting an enhanced stunt day because, I mean, um, as a young stuntman, you know, you, you end up, um, especially if you're very physical, you know, jumping off buildings, setting yourself on fire, getting hit by cars, etc., so the, the things that you're doing, are, are, you're getting an adjustment on top of the basic daily rate. So a lot of the days I was performing on, I would be getting at least the equivalent of two weeks money, I think, at the theater for one day's work. Um, you know, and, and sometimes more. I mean, obviously, you know, you're aware that commercials pay residuals and I was 
Um, you know, I did a couple of commercials, one particularly large commercial that that uh, went national. And, um, you know, that paid me almost a year's national theater money in one day. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I was curious <laughs> if it was like a, yeah, like, you know, kind of like a, it was a underwater basket weaving or whatever, where it's like, oh, yeah, you do it for a week, it pays for your year kind of thing. <laughs> um, it's kind of, I mean, you know, it, as I said at the time, I, I believe it was sort of a very basic day would be the equivalent of a week at the National Theatre. And then, I mean, and the thing was, I really wanted to do the theatre, but I, I, I was renting a small apartment in London and with everything else that was going on, basically I would have been struggling to, to sort of pay the rent and everything else, which I know, you know, as an, as an actor starting out, all, all most actors, not all actors, or some are very lucky and, and go straight into something great. Um, but most of us that come out of drama school, most of the people that, that are still coming out of drama school every year are struggling, you know, doing sort of off off-Broadway shows, you know, um, off-West End shows in London where you're doing profit share and children's theatre and, you know, some some repertory theatre in the UK sort of, you know, staying with a small company for a, a season where you have a few roles in a few things. So, you know, the, the money is not great. And if you're lucky and you get into television and film where the money is much better um, or you become a big name in theatre, it's great. But... Um, you know, and, and of course, at that point, you're earning a lot more than a stuntman. But when you're doing the basic sort of equivalent job in theatre, which is, you know, small theatre, or you're doing small television, you're earning a lot more in, in the stunt world. And uh, how, how, uh, how long have you been doing stunts when you, uh, when you got into Batman 1989? Oh, um, I think it was only about three or four years. And I mean, I was just one of the guys running around with a gun being one of Jack Nicholson's thugs as the Joker. Oh, okay. um, you know, it was one of those guys sort of running around shooting people. Um, it was, I was basically a performer for the first five or six years of my career as everyone in the UK has to be. Um, the UK had a very um, stringent system ahead of pretty much every other country in the world. Some of the other countries such as South Africa, Australia, um, yeah, places like that have adopted a similar system whereby you had to have a certain number of days, excuse me, you had to have a certain number of days and they had to um, sort of, you had to have a certain number of skills and qualifications. They gave you a list of skills, i.e., um, you know, scuba diving, master diver or, or dive instructor level, um, martial arts, black belt level, uh, skydiving, your ACAT license and et cetera, et cetera. So they gave you a choice of, of uh, skills and you had to get a minimum of six of those. So um, it was a very stringent system to go through. And then once you qualify as a stunt performer, you have to perform, or at least when I started, I'm not quite sure what the qualifications are now and what the periods of, of qualification are. But uh, when I started, you had to do a minimum of three years of performing work, working for other stunt coordinators. And then you could apply to become an intermediate stunt member, whereby you could perform on your own, but you couldn't tell anyone else what to do. You couldn't coordinate any shows. And then after another two years of that work, where you're still performing for other people and occasionally doing something for yourself, um, then you can apply to become a full member. And once you're a full member, then you can start coordinating. So there, there was a system built up in the UK, which I, I think is a very good system, 
whereby you have to go through a process of having experienced a number of stunts on a personal level. You have to have been on fire yourself. You have to have fallen off a building. You have to have crashed a car, et cetera, et cetera, in order to progress to the next level so that you're not just going out there in charge of a show and you haven't sort of got the experience to be in charge of the show. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're certified in like car crashes or, you know, car stunts and stuff like that before it's like you're, you're in charge of it. That, that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, in, in different countries, there are people who are friends of producers, etc., who, you know, become coordinators who just make phone calls to people and bring in people with the experience to do it for them. But in the UK, the system was very much, let's get the people who are doing a lot of work um, to become the coordinators and they've got the experience then to, to sort of do the things themselves rather than just having to make a phone call. Yeah. yeah, or like willing to do it like on the cheap or something and then safety <laughs> becomes a huge concern or something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I also noticed you were part of a uh, Nightbreed. Uh, it's one of our favorite movies. Were you like in the prosthetics <laughs> and everything? I was in the prosthetics sort of backflipping through flames and things like that. <laughs> I mean, one of the skills that I started as a stuntman with, I, I was an acrobat in the circus in Spain for a, a short period, um, did a few theater shows as an acrobat as well. And um, that was one of the skills that I had as a young stuntman. So it was something that uh, I was able to utilize in Nightbreed. It was, it was a, again, pretty basic kind of performing level, doing some a series of backflips and things. And I can't remember if I did much else, but it was, you know, going through flames with prosthetics and that kind of thing. And what was that like working with? Like, did, did you work directly with Clive Barker or anything? Or? No, unfortunately, at that point as a performer, I mean, if, if I did, it was kind of like, can you do it a little faster? That was pretty much all I would have, you know, had the, um, the experience with anyone in charge at that point. As a performer, you basically go in and the coordinator is the one telling you what to do. Um, occasionally the director, if he's got some particular information that he thinks the coordinator may not be getting across to you, might sort of say, you know, come across and have a quick chat with you. But generally as a performer, uh, you know, the coordinator is the one doing the communicating with you. Yep, I guess throughout the 90s, you were in like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, Judge Dredd, uh, Braveheart, where I guess you uh, coordinated some of the sword fighting and stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, the um, Robin Hood and uh, Judge Dredd, I was again a performer working for other coordinators, you know, doing some sword work, some bow and arrow kind of shooting, running from tree to tree and, and things like that. And then Judge Dredd again, you know, shooting guns and running around, getting shot and, and the general performing thing. Um, on Braveheart, it was the first big movie from my point of view that I was actually in charge of a department. I was the fight choreographer, swordmaster, and I choreographed pretty much every, well, I did choreograph every fight in the movie and trained Mel Gibson and um, trained all the stuntmen and uh, put all the fight sequences together. I say, yeah, with the Claymore, because you grew up uh, fencing and all that, with the Claymores, I assume, are a completely different beast, being the more broadsword or... It is, and especially for me, I mean, I'm, I'm a fairly short guy, and uh, the, the sword that the, um, the sword maker, the, the armorer, made, um, he made a couple of different lengths so that we could use them in different situations. Obviously, the, the really long one um, was, almost, it was almost as tall as me, um, so when I was training, and, and the, the original was made of steel. So at the time when I was started training Mel Gibson, 
um, we only had one alloy, which was slightly lighter, and we had one steel. So I was using the steel in order to show him the movements. And I remember almost dislocating my shoulder daily because the, the sword was so heavy and so because you had to hold it up high, otherwise it would hit the ground because it's such a large sword. Um, so when I was showing him some of the sort of general get used to the sword movements, the twirling of the sword and things, um, he was using the slightly shorter alloy sword and I was using the big steel sword. And uh, it, was a, it was a lot of wear on the shoulders at that point, I can tell you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And those, those epic fight scenes too, where there's hundreds of people running at each other and fighting. And <laughs> like, like I assume like you were probably more focused like on the four camera fighting, but also like in the background, the convincing like, you know, I guess extras or whatever going on. Is that well, that was the, I mean, I, I ended up on that movie training a thousand extras. Um, I, I had a couple of guys who I think both have gone on now to be fairly, fairly big names in the stunt coordinating and, and action directing world as my assistants to, to, to help me. Um, but basically three of us went to Ireland early and because uh, we did the battle sequences in Ireland, um, the big ones, and we went to Ireland early to train all the background as well as the choreograph, the main fights. And um, they would literally bring them in, in in teams of 50 and I'd have them pair off. And then we'd go through a routine. This is fight A, part one, fight A, part two. So that all the background, we trained a thousand of them. And out of the thousand, I picked about 125 that were better than the rest to be our closer background so we had layers we had the actors obviously right in front of camera then we had the stunt guys fighting with the actors and, and immediately around the the actors and then I, we had the 125 guys that i picked out of the thousand extras that we trained and then the rest of them went behind those um so we had a deep background and uh, and you could you know I, I think it was one of those periods where we were experimenting a lot with the visual effects side of it but they were trying to get as much in camera as possible and so for the actual battle sequences where people were in the midst of it they were all pretty much real it was just the big sort of static shots where you saw six thousand or so which were the plates and the vfx shots so it was it was a challenge because even with the horses you know we had 125 horses and uh training those to, to do the action and, and they sort of all, you know, charge in a row and everything else was very difficult. Whereas nowadays you tend to have a lot less and it's very much computer enhanced and uh, CG stuff. So you can focus on certain elements of it and you don't have to do it on such a large scale anymore because VFX have taken over so much. Yeah, that was definitely one of the last like like epic movies. Because yeah, after that, we start getting like Lord of the Rings, where it's like, yeah, there's some there, but then it's just kind of copied and repeated and all. Absolutely. That. That's. Uh, I I personally I I love the big cast. I fully appreciate just how much work training a thousand people and 125 <laughs> horses has to be. But like, I feel like you can like feel it on screen. It yeah. just feels much more massive. So. Yeah, and I, 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 well, oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, it was a, it was a tough job, um, and you know, there's, there was a lot of work involved from everyone on that on that level. And I think you know, Mel Gibson, particularly, did an amazing job as director, producer, and star of the movie. Um, but looking back on it, you know, I, I mean, I was in India recently, you know, a month or so ago. And I had people coming, oh, Braveheart was on the TV the other day. I was watching, oh, what an amazing, and it's great after, I'm, I'm 
trying to remember now. It must be at least 25 years, um, probably longer, um, that, you know, and, and it still stands up, which is great. Absolutely. And then after that, I, I mean, uh, you, you were in GoldenEye doing stunts or were you recording? Again, as a stunt performer, it was, you know, running around. I think there was, if I recall correctly, um, it was in the submarine section and we were running around getting shot and, and shooting people and just general. There was, you know, a number of 10, 12, 15 performers or something running around getting shot and uh, falling over balustrades and into the water and things, if I remember correctly. Nice. All right. How, how about the mummy 99? That's another one of our favorites. Well, the mummy again, um, because I, I think because of Braveheart, they asked me to, to sort of be the sword master on the whole movie and choreograph all the fights. But at that point I was doing a lot of television and smaller movies as the coordinator. And I'd already signed on to a few projects, so I couldn't do the whole movie, but um, because I couldn't do the whole movie and they'd asked me to do it, they said, well, could you do this particular special fight, which is the one with Brendan Fraser fighting all the zombies, the, the sort of the mummies. Um, and there was about, I think, 12 mummies he's fighting and he's cutting heads off and, and using the sword as a baseball bat shop and sending the head flying. And, and um, so I came in to choreograph and, and help put that fight together. Um, so I, I basically was in charge of that particular sequence. So did it involve a lot of like storyboarding and stuff because you know it was a lot of like I, I assume like tennis balls and like oh yeah there's going to be a head here you know on the sword and then flicking it across the room or whatever. Um, there there were there were some of that there there, there were some of those things going on but the, what I, I I used real stunt guys to choreograph the whole thing um, and then what we did was we'd have the stunt guys in green suits and blue suits in order for to be in the right place for Brendan Fraser to begin with. So we'd shoot it that way first, and then we'd shoot it in pieces without the stunt guy. So Brendan would do it. And then they'd obviously put the, the um, mummy body on top of the stunt man that Brendan was interacting with and, and things like that. But yep, certainly a, a certain amount of tennis balls and uh, you know men in green suits and things like that flying around. Excellent. And I just have to ask, how was Brendan Fraser to work with? He was great. I mean, again, I only had that one sequence to do with him. Um, he would come in on time. He would be there rehearsing and, and get everything done. He was athletic, enthusiastic. Um, so nothing but good, but good things to say about him. Excellent. That's what I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you had mentioned the, the television stuff you were doing around the time, like with actual coordinating and even like into second unit directing. How, how yep. did that differ like with the television schedule as opposed to like the movie schedule and just kind of the interactions uh, between the two? Well, um, usually with a movie like, let's say The Mummy, um, you know, they asked me to be on it for, I think, five or six months. Um, which is you're on it from the beginning until the last sequence that you're involved with. Um, whereas a TV show, a lot of the time they're bringing you in specifically for like say four stunts in six episodes. There's a car crash in episode one. There's a fight in episode two. There's nothing in episode three. And, you know, and so they sort of go, you know, we want you for three or four days in, in April. And then can we have you for two blocks of a week in, in May? Etc. You know, so you've got those things. Um, I was very lucky because I was working with a lot of other people in the UK that I had, you know, that I trusted and, and you know, reciprocally trusted me. So I could, I was sometimes in charge of 
six, seven um, shows at the same time where I would be, you know, three or four television series, two, two small movies and, and doing something on, a, on one of the big movies whereby I would, okay, um, that's just a couple of slaps with an actor and things. I'll send someone else in to do that while I go and do the big car crash on this one because they're clashing on that day. And I would take the, the main stunts um, for myself because that's the most interesting thing for me. And then I would send someone else in to, to sort of handle the, the smaller stuff if they were clashing on the day, um, which lucky for me, a lot of the producers and, and assistant directors that were in charge of those and directors, of course, um, were, were happy to do. Uh, they, you know, they would... I, I built up a rapport with a certain amount of directors, producers in the UK, whereby they would call me and say, look, Nick, as long as you're doing the big sequences for us, you can put other people in for the smaller stuff if you, if you can't make it. But we just really want you to be here for the big stuff. Um, so I got a lot of experience very fast. Um, I think the engineering side helped a lot at the beginning and the fact that I treated the stunt work as an extension of the acting. So a lot of the time you're working with actors, um, a lot of stunt guys I'd worked with previously, stunt coordinators, were sort of, you know, you throw a right, you throw a left, you kick him, he falls over, you do this. And it's just putting a sequence together. I came in from the acting side and there were already a few guys doing it, but not that many who sort of read the script, looked at the character, thought about it from an acting side and then went, well, why is this character doing this at the moment? What are we trying to say? How are we trying to sort of give more information to the audience by what he's doing. So um, I came at it from that side of things. So I tended to get on very well with actors because they, they looked at the way I was putting the things together and saw that it was actually trying to um, give the audience more about the character to, to inform the audience better. I always believe that good action is like good dialogue. Um, if you choreograph a fight well, it's easy for an actor to remember. If it's a bad, if it's bad choreography, it's difficult to remember. The same as bad dialogue. Um, you know, if it's very good dialogue, the actors remember it quickly. It's and and you know can can run with it very easily. And likewise, I think action is just basically physical dialogue. Yeah. yeah, I can see like the, the, the was it the adage, show, don't tell, how action can kind of absolutely with the dialogue and everything. Yeah, that's impressive. And then, of course, uh, we're getting to the Bourne identity that you won fight coordinator of the year for and basically revolutionized action movies in the early <laughs> 2000s with it. If I, you know, thank you. <laughs> but what was that whole experience like, like working with that movie and just kind of doing different things but uh, something we hadn't seen before you know well I mean when I went in initially on that movie um, Doug Lyman the director wanted to do something different with the character I mean Matt Matt Damon at that point had already been training in Krav Maga um, and and Kali Filipino style uh, mostly Philip the Filipino style um, fighting and with a little bit of Krav Maga and he'd done a lot of gun work already so he, he'd already got his basics down and Doug said to me that he wanted to do the whole fight in a sort of Filipino style, which uh, with the Kali kind of martial arts, which is a deflection punch, deflect punch, you know. And um, I, I, I knew the style. I mean, I, I was, when I started training, knowing that my main asset at that point was the physical side. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I did a 
competition fencing in all three weapons. And um, at, at the same time, I was training in, in Korean martial arts for five years, Chinese martial arts for about four years. I Japanese martial arts off and on for another two or three years. So I had a, a good mixed background. I'd done a little boxing, a little kickboxing and things like that. So I could, I could insert different styles throughout. And Doug specifically, you know, had, had asked Matt to train in Cali. So I had to utilize that. But I figured that a whole fight in that particular style might be a little bit um, limiting and boring after a certain amount of time knowing that this was a, you know, it's, it's a, the, the fight in the apartment was a very big sequence. So I incorporated a lot of the Kali, some Krav Maga, some basic kickboxing techniques, a bit of karate, anything that worked from the point of view of my idea for the character was that obviously this guy has had the best trainers in the world and, you know, and taken the best pieces of each martial arts. So it, it was kind of an early MMA kind of style of fighting from a, from a um, theatrical point of view, uh, trying to mix and match the different styles of, that, that worked well for the movie. And I went in as the um, stunt coordinator and fight choreographer initially, and then um, they, they asked me to take over on the action directing side. So I directed all the fight sequences as well. Um, and, you know, put those together and I even went in on the edit. So it was, it was great from that side of things. I, I gained a lot of experience on that movie and, um, it was, as you said, something that changed the way people thought about things, at least for a, for a while. Um, so it was a great experience on that, on that side. And of course, uh, okay. We love ballistic X versus sever. I know it's regarded as like... <laughs> zero <laughs> percent on rotten tomatoes and all that fun stuff They're but wrong. it's just They're a wrong. great fun action <laughs> movie to us we love it uh what was it like working on that set and everything though um that was I, i'd actually just moved to vancouver at that point um from london and a friend of mine was coordinating it and so i i'd literally come here just i just finished born i just finished 28 days later in london and born in paris and then I moved to, to Vancouver. And basically being here, I didn't really know anyone here. And a friend of mine said, hey, you know, do you want to just come and run around and perform a little bit, dress up in military costume and run around with a gun and do a, maybe a fire job? And a, so I said, yeah, that's great. I'll learn. I'll, I'll meet a lot of the people, learn how things are working in Vancouver. Never worked here before. Never really met anyone. So I went on the set for a, I think I was there about a week, that's all, and um, was sort of, you know, running around as a performer and, and just meeting people and, uh, and having fun in general. Excellent. Well, so you mentioned uh, 28 Days Later, um, was it working primarily with like the, the, I guess, the zombie performers or? Yeah, I mean, Danny Boyle, uh, asked me to do that movie um, when he was just starting out on it. And so I had a little bit of help. Um, I, I helped out a little bit on the, the movement. They had a movement specialist who came in and, and, and sort of worked with Danny to get the style that he wanted. And then once that style was established, I helped with some of the actors and, and stunt performers who were working on it to sort of incorporate that style in. But I was essentially brought in as the stunt coordinator 
to sort of to do the whole the whole movie. Um, there were a number of zombies, you know, getting blown up and things like that. So we had air rams and ratchets and and everything going on, and uh, some some of the driving sequences in the taxi. And so I ended up shooting some of the stuff um, as a splinter unit for Danny, and uh, and basically was in charge of the of the action sequences in general. And because uh, based on the success of Born Identity and all that, that uh, were you just getting offers left and right, or was it still just kind of like whatever was available? I don't know. It, no, well, it was actually it was a strange one because um, Born was very successful, and I got immediately from Born I was offered uh, The Last Samurai, and uh, I was offered Troy at the same time. And uh, I I had a, sort of a, a massive affinity for Japanese culture ever since I was a teenager. And um, so I was basically committed to Last Samurai when, you know, when I got off at Troy. So I, I ended up training Brad Pitt for, a, a you know, a couple of weekends at his house just to give him some basic sword work and spear work um, for Troy. But I was in charge of Samurai for over a year. Um, the, the good thing with Samurai was that Tom Cruise is such a committed performer um, three months before we even started official prep, he was asking me to to spend time with him. So pretty much every other week, I'd spend a couple of hours a day at his house training him with a sword and 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 sort of in the Japanese style movements and everything else. So for about three months off and on, just it was basically Tom and I. Um, so he could get the basics. And then there was four months of full-time prep where Tom would come in again five days a week um, at least a minimum of an hour to two hours a day to to get the fight choreography and everything together. I choreographed all the fights on the movie. I was the stunt coordinator as well, running from first to second unit and getting everything done. Um, brought in a team to train the horses. We were shooting in New Zealand, and believe it or not, because they'd already shot Lord of the Rings when we got there, I said, uh, "Where are the stunt horses? How do we how do we check the stunt horses out? That there aren't any." Well, what, what did Lord of the Rings use? Well, they bought some of them in from Australia um, and they had a few local horses, but they're not stunt horses. And So I ended up bringing in a team and we went around the island. Um, well, the team did, not me personally, but they went around the island and we, we bought, we purchased um, 55, 60 horses. And I had the, treat, the team train the horses up so that we, we basically had a full team of horses falling horses rearing horses for the movie so we we took horses that had never been on a film set trained them up from scratch and at the end of the movie um, they were so well trained that when lord of the rings did their reshoots they basically took all the horses from us and uh, used all the horses that we trained for for, for our movie uh you, you mentioned like uh, tom cruise uh, you know being all in with like the you know I guess working out and training two, three hours a day on top of everything else. Has there ever been a situation where you obviously you don't have to name names or anything, but where <laughs> like an actor wasn't particularly as forthcoming? Like I'm already studying the lines and all this other stuff. Why do I gotta, you know, learn wushu or whatever on top of it? You <laughs> know, I've yeah. well, I, I know exactly what you said. I knew the question was coming up. That's why there was a big smile on my face, because I guess has anyone never really put the effort in. Um, of course, there, there have been occasions where, you know, um, it's either difficult for them or depending on, you know, certain certain actors who know 
there's going to be a stunt double doing pretty much all the work for them. And they're there to say the lines and, and look as though they're doing the action, but not really do it. Um, certain people limited by age and, and range of motion. Um, so there have been occasions, but I've been very lucky. I mean, you know, Matt Damon, Russell Crowe, uh, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, um, James Franco, uh, Jaiman Hounsou, uh, all the people that I've worked with, Mel Gibson, you know, I mean, Mel, Mel, if I'm thinking of all those names, Mel was probably the one who had the least amount of time to train because he was directing, producing and starring in Braveheart. Yeah. But even then he would still, you know, I mean, I trained him in the basics for two or three weeks before we started shooting. And then every day when we did the fights, we knew the fights so well that I would basically call when Mel's ready. I'm ready to do my own fight now. Nick, come on. So I would show him, okay, first guy's coming from here. You parry here. You cut this guy coming in the second one. And then this guy. And so we'd do like a four-move sequence. Um, and if I was, because I trained everyone, all the stunt guys, and knew everything and knew that the way it was going to be, I would basically shout out, Mel Gibson fight two part A. And the, the four guys that were involved in that sequence would run over immediately and we'd walk through that sequence. I'd show Mel the moves. We'd shoot that sequence with all the background going, okay, Mel Gibson fight two part B. And the guys would run over and we'd get, and we'd shoot that part of the sequence. Um, and so that was one of the sort of bittiest experiences. Um, luckily, as I said, for me with, with people like, Tom Cruise and, and Matt Damon and, and Russell Crowe and people like that, you know, we've got the time, we've got the resources to, to be able to spend as much time. Um, James Franco, even though it was a very small movie in, in, in retrospect, uh, we did a movie called Annapolis and it was a boxing movie. Um, essentially from my point of view, it was a boxing movie because that was where most of the action was taking place. And j even then, you know, James Franco would turn up at 5.30 in the morning before going to makeup to do an hour and a half of rehearsal so that he looked really good. I've, I've been very fortunate in the, in the actors that I've worked with over the years, more often than not, to, to sort of have them, um, you know, committed so much to looking good on screen. Um, so, so, yeah, I've, I've been very lucky. Excellent. And yeah, I didn't mean to say like, you know, actors being namby-pamby or whatever, but it's like, like if you're Tom Cruise, it's like, oh yeah, I'm also doing reshoots on Minority Report and stuff like that too. I just don't have time in the day. That was kind of more. <laughs> well, it was, it was yeah. funny you mentioned Minority Report because when he first called me to come and start training with him, um, he was doing publicity for Minority Report, but he was actually taking, I gave him two wooden swords at the time so that he could just practice the swings and he would take them with him and then he would come back and his assistant was going, even between the interviews, he was swinging the sword. So he was actually doing pu publicity for Minority Report, but he was still practicing for, for Samurai, getting ready for that. So everything I taught him before, whenever he'd come back from a two-week or a one-week kind of publicity stint, and he was better than when he went away. So he was constantly improving. He, he's got that sort of, you know, attitude all the time. He always wants to be better. Excellent. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. Um, and then I, I guess basically from there, you were starting to get the uh, second unit directing. Is that more primarily just like the, the directing the fight scenes and stuff like that? Or uh, primarily it is. I mean, it started for me, I was doing a lot of television work, as I said early on. And uh, there were a number of um, times when things didn't go so well for the directors. Um, 
and producers would, there were a couple of TV shows where they fired the director and they'd seen my work and asked me to take over, um, even directing the, the dialogue sequences, et cetera, et cetera. So I, and I'd done some directing when I was in drama school, I directed a couple of small plays. So I'd always kind of, you know, had that ambition to get into the directing side. And it was eye-opening for me working on a few of the sort of TV shows. Um, the one in particular, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, they did a TV series. Yeah. And there were a couple of directors that they let go early, shall we say. Um, and I ended up taking over and, you know, directing the last four days of the episode kind of thing and, and stuff like that, which, which sort of led me to, to getting more involved in the second unit directing and later on into directing itself. But um, the action directing, second unit directing is essentially, um, you know, it, it is really the action sequences. But even on on Bourne, um, on the Bourne identity, I remember going off with Clive Owen and shooting some sequences that were acting scenes um, because they trusted me to that extent where, you know, can you go off and get this sequence with Clive? And um you know, I, I think we were on top of a building in Paris somewhere. He was sort of looking through a, a scope and thing, and you know, sitting with Clive and going through, going through the sequence as a director rather than as an action director, um, sort of led me to that point where, you know, okay, it's I, sh I should be, and 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 people were telling me, you know, you should be directing now. It's it's time for you to actually get out there and direct, but it's not as easy as it uh, as it sounds generally, and it's it's a lot harder than. Uh, people think, and um, you have a lot of, unless you're very lucky, I know that a certain amount of action directors have gone on to become very successful directors, but um, it's it's tricky. It is tricky. It's a, it's a timing thing and, uh, and a project um, sort of based um, luck of the draw. Yeah, yeah, I can see where it's like, you know, the movie has to be a financial hit. It also has to be kind of like critically acclaimed as like, yeah, just to get the, the repeat, like obviously like Doug Lyman and stuff like that, kind of being an action director for the last what, 20 years or whatever now. Like before yeah. that, he was directing Swingers. I, I don't know. <laughs> like it's, yeah, just absolutely. Kind of, uh, I don't know, but the iron's hot, I guess. But, but I, I mean, I, I was just looking over like the second unit directing, like apparently like the wrestling scenes, like in Nacho Libre. Um, yeah. Obviously, some great stunt stuff in Hot Rod, one of our favorite comedies of the last right. 20 years. Right. Um, and then working with like Paul W. Anderson or Paul W. S. Anderson for the Three Musketeers, which we absolutely yes. love. It's a great, it's a great fun movie. You know, it's yeah. uh, it is a good fun movie. Yeah, and, and you know, like like the Resident Evil movies and stuff like that too. Yeah. And, uh, after that, you finally got the chance to direct outright with legendary Academy Award winning actor Nicolas Cage, one of our absolute favorites. Uh, in <laughs> Patreon the movie. Right. Yeah. Uh, understood yeah how uh how how was that uh, like had you worked with nick before i hadn't i hadn't it was a, it was a strange it was a strange um sort of lead up to the whole thing um i'd i'd been asked to direct a couple of movies and you know they got close and didn't happen and i, I was turning down i mean i turned down action on on angels and demons the incredible hulk 2 the wolverine i was getting calls saying do you want to come and do this and, and uh, no i'm directing a movie no i'm directing a movie and none of those movies I, I actually turned down so much work waiting for movies to happen 
that it kind of, to me, it was a running joke. It was like, you know, if I tell somebody I'm directing a movie, I'm going to get offered another job and then, you know, and then I'll turn that down and the movie won't happen, which it, 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 it was like that for a number of years. There were about four or five, six years where, you know, I was in prep, we would start and getting things together, starting the casting, the whole thing would fall apart. So I, I was very unlucky um, for a number of years. And then um, Jeremy Bolt, who um, was Paul Anderson's producer on the Resident Evils and, and Musketeers and things, came to me with a script, said, you should direct. And uh, it, was a, it was outcast. And the script initially was set in the UK. Um, it was Anglo-Saxon. And um, the, it was one guy who was sort of out the same kind of story as Outcast, but set in the UK, Middle Ages, but with one guy. And then it got changed to China because the um, the distribution company, the sales agency who were interested in making it, um, realized they could get it made in China easier. And and it was China was becoming one of those countries that was opening up and uh, this could work really well in China. So the script was then rewritten for China. Still one, one hero. And initially we got Hayden Christensen on board and, um, and he was great. He was all ready to come and, and, and do the movie. And it was basically one guy who left the crusades and helped the, you know, the prince and um, the princess and young prince sort of get away from and overcome their, their uncle there. Um, and so they realized at a certain point that the budget was getting bigger and they needed another name on top of Hayden. And so the sales agency sort of turned around and said, well, what about Nick Cage? You know, I think Nick could, if we, I said, well, there's no role for Nick. I mean, what does he do? I said, well, we can combine this role and this role. And so it became a mishmash of, of things. And then essentially the script, the script was again rewritten um, so that it was, you know, Nick Cage sort of bookended the movie front and back um, in order to bring Nick in. So we combined a couple of characters. And, and so the script kind of started to get diluted to the point where it was, I mean, it was now a buddy movie to a certain degree. And it went to Nick. Nick said, yep. Uh, he knew about me. He, he knew my reputation from an action directing point of view. And, and I, I, chatted with him and we got on very well. So he, he agreed to do the movie. Um, unfortunately, we had a, a Chinese producer who had creative control of the movie due to the funding situation. And he kept on trying to rewrite the script and change things as we were going. So it turned out to be not a great experience from, from pretty much anyone's point of view. Um, he had 5,000 screens lined up to open the movie at and he decided the night before to pull it off all 5,000 screens. So it was, you know, none of us were happy with the situation. Um, but I got on very well with Nick and Hayden and the, and the Chinese actors that were involved. And at the end of it, Nick and I said, well, let's try and find something else to do where we, where we have a better experience together. And that came up when I was sent the script for Primal. Um, the producer who sent me the script for Primal turned around and says, look, there's a certain group of actors that can get this financed immediately. Uh, if we can get one of these five names, insert certain names here, um, you know, we can get going on this. 
I liked the script enough that I said, well, with a rewrite and a bit of a polish here and there, I think we're ready to go. And I've been looking for something to do with Nick for a while. Let me see if Nick's interested. And I sent it to him and he read it immediately. And within a couple of days, he'd signed on. The problem was that um, unfortunately, the producer didn't quite have as much um, ability to green light it as he'd, as he'd informed us. So it took another year after Nick says, yes, I'll do it in order to, to get it going. So it was it's on, it's off, it was on, it was off. I was going out to India to direct the action on a big battle movie. And then I go, oh, it's back on again. So then I, I left that movie and left my assistant in charge to do the battles after I'd already done a few months of the battles already. So it was going pretty well. And then I walked away to come and do the Nick Cage project. And then that collapsed again. So I was sitting at home waiting and uh, it was just one of those sort of situations where we seem to be you know, in purgatory um, for a, in development hell, so to speak, in funding hell for quite a while. Um, so it took about a year after Nick said yes for us to actually finally get going. But uh, and and again, you know, behind the scenes kind of information is initially we had a 35 day schedule, which became a 30 day schedule, which became a 25 day schedule. And you're trying to do a movie that is really difficult to do in. 30 days in 25 days and you know you've got to be really well prepared and uh, Nick's great because Nick is always fully committed once he's there he's fully committed he's he's sitting there waiting for you know as soon as you need him uh, you know he's, he's right on set he's there he knows his lines there's no there's no messing around there's no sort of he knows exactly what he's doing as soon as he gets there so professional and and uh, you know committed but um we, again, you know, we had problems with it in general, but uh, it was it was a lot more fun than than doing Outcast. I can tell you. Excellent. And, and <laughs> well, we we love Primal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so thank fun. you. Bought, bought it the day it got released. Yep. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's great. And uh, with uh, I guess like Kevin Durant probably doing a lot more of the the actual like action fighting and you know escaping scenes and stuff like that. How was he to work with? Oh, Kevin's amazing. I'd already worked with Kevin and Kevin was a friend of mine. Um, and so I the, initially the producers wanted some big, big name. And, uh, you know, it was not working out for us on the names we were going to. They were either busy or didn't want to commit or, you know, wanted more money than we could afford with the movie. So um, eventually, I, I mean, I suggested Kevin from the beginning and um you know, there was a little bit of reluctance, great actor and everything else, but we want a big name. We want a big name. And, um, you know, we, we never ended up with a big name and things came together pretty quickly. So I then got in touch with Kevin and said, hey, look, I've, I've wanted you. You know, I wanted you from the beginning. So can you? And he's like, yep, for you, I'm there. And uh, jumped on a plane, came over uh, a week of discussion and, and rehearsals and things. And, and he was straight into it. And I think he did an amazing job. And um I mean, I really like Kevin as a, as a person. He's so much fun to have around on set to begin with. Everybody likes Kevin. He's just a great guy and, uh, and a very good actor. I mean, very, I think, I believe underrated. Um, oh, yeah. You know, like, I think he's... The intensity in Primal is like just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I said, I love him to death. He's a great guy. Um, as well as a really good actor, so um, anything that I can I can work with him on. I mean, we we were trying to get another movie going recently, um, where we you know it was something I wrote for him that we kind of developed together, 
and we were almost up and running a year or so ago and uh, that got put on hold but uh, I'm, de I'm determined to work with him again he's such a good guy Excellent. And I know the past couple of years you've been doing uh, stunt coordinating uh, on Bollywood movies. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I had a I had a period where I was going through China and I did a few movies in China. And then I got called for a, a movie in India. It was the biggest budget movie ever, ever done in India. And so I went out and did that. And based on on that and the experience that people had had with me, I got offered another one and I went out and directed the, the battle sequences and things and and then got called for another one and another one. And um, I've been asked to direct a movie in India. So that's interesting. I'm, I'm waiting to see how that, that pans out. Actually, I've been asked to direct a couple of movies in India. So I'm waiting to see how those pan out um, over the next couple of years. And there's another... There's another project I'm supposedly doing for um, some some producers out of LA. We're just getting everything together on on that side at the moment, and a female-led action thriller. Mm -hmm. So that should be really interesting if that comes together as quickly as we hope. There's a few things on the directing side that I'm hoping hoping happen fairly soon. But uh, in the meantime, I've just been out directing another big action sequence on another big sci-fi movie in in India. Um, India has two two um, film well it has a lot of film industries to be honest but the two main ones bollywood and tollywood which is north and south and bollywood is in the north and they've got a slightly different way of working than the guys in the south and the and and it's a slightly different style of filmmaking um so it's kind of interesting to go through that process working in the north and the south and and seeing how they do things out there how it's all put together um and basically because i've been out there for the last few years things just seem to have been riding on, on, on that wave a little bit. You do one, you get asked to do another, you do another, you get asked to do two more. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of enjoying it out there at the moment. So, yeah, sorry. So how does it like differ between like Hollywood, North and South? Like it's a little more leisurely or like, uh, I don't know. In the South, they tend to not use like first ADs so much. They tend to not be as well scheduled not not always but they tend to be a little more loose in their sort of ad and and organizational departments um you know you'll you'll get to the set and you'll start to sort of figure how to what are we shooting today oh let's move that to tomorrow we'll move this to there and in the north they they have a little bit more of a a western system in terms of their organizational sort of they have a first ad and a second ad and, and an ad department in the south it's more of an AD department where they've got six ADs and nobody's the key first AD. They're all kind of pitching in together. So it becomes a little less, a little less well-organized and structured, um, you know, and again, exactly, exactly. So it, it is, it, it is a different world, the North and the South. I mean, obviously it's India. So there's a lot of similarities between the North and the South, but there are differences. And again, it's different to working in China. Um, I mean, I've worked in, I think, 28 countries now um, around the world and, you know, some great experiences and some, some terrible experiences um, in terms of getting the things that you need in order to make the sequence work as well as it could be. Um, just there, there are a lot of things. If you're going to go to India, you need visas and everybody's the, the visa process, especially over the last couple of years with COVID can take an awful lot longer than than it normally does and you end up not having the team that you need 
to sort of work with that you're used to working with. And then you're basically improvising out there with people that you've never worked with before that don't know the way that you normally work. Uh, and so it can be, it can be tough, but I like a challenge. Excellent. Well, I guess looking towards future projects and everything, is there like a, like a dream project you've always wanted to do or. I've got a couple that I've kind of been working on. It's, it's, one of those things where, again, as I was mentioning earlier, things start looking as though they're coming together. There's one, it's kind of a, a thriller love story kind of thing that I wanted to shoot in Cuba for seven or eight years. And it's, it's almost been ready to go twice. And it's looking like it might be coming back together again right now. Um, it's a sort of a steampunk-esque um, thriller in, in the vein of... Uh, um, I guess I'm trying to think there's a little bit of uh, the city of lost children um, kind of feel to it. Uh, anyway, it's, it's something that I've, I've been wanting to do for a long time, helped develop the script. And we've been very close a few times. We've had salespeople interested in everything else. And then it depends on which actor you get at which time and whether you can go to Cuba to shoot, because if they, you know, the embargo and everything else and, what's happening, whether you, so, so basically that's one I've always wanted to do. Well, not always. I mean, for the last seven or eight years, um, as I said, there's a female led thriller that I'm, I'm sort of talking to, to, to them about. We've been sort of polishing the script recently for the sales agents. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've got a few things. I've actually been developing a very big action project for India as well. Um, in the vein of a sort of a Mission Impossible Bond kind of thing to shoot out in uh, sort of partly in India, partly in Europe, but uh, with with the action with the Indian action stars. Of course, the uh, name of our podcast is Everything I Learned from Movies. Uh, just before we wrap up here, is there some lessons or something you'd like to share to, with our listeners, just that they're looking to get into the industry or? Uh, something you've learned over the past, uh, gosh, I guess almost 40 years in the industry. I've probably forgotten more than I actually remember um, <laughs> such a long time ago. But I mean, again, it's a determination, uh, you know, thing. It's like any any industry that you're trying to get in where there's a, there's a sort of a barrier to entry. Um, obviously, you know, you become a little cynical after a while, knowing that there's, there is like any industry, there's a certain amount of nepotism and, and things going on. And it's not always, you have to sort of temper everything, knowing that it's not always the best person that gets the job. Um, and sort of don't get disheartened by the fact that someone else got it. Um, because maybe, you know, there's a mandate at that point to hire certain people that you, you don't fit into the category of. Um, and it, it's nothing to do with you necessarily, personally. I mean, you know, I've heard a lot of stories over the last four or five years where people who are very well established and not getting the work that they're, that they're good to do, experienced to do, um, simply because the nature of the business is changing. Um, you know, so what I, what I would suggest is, you know, keep, keep pushing at, to the point where, I mean, it's easy coming from me who turned down the National Theatre because I couldn't afford to do it. So keep, <laughs> keep pushing. And, you know, but there's a certain point where you've got to make a living. And uh, at, at, at a certain time, you know, you give yourself that, that factor of, hey, in five years, I'll give myself five years or I'll give myself three years or whatever it is. And, and 
hopefully there's something on that journey to the to the sort of like giving yourself that three or five years which will sort of reinvigorate you um, re-inspire you reinvigorate um to basically go okay well that was a really good experience and now maybe something else will come from it uh, i mean i'm talking to a lot of people uh, um at the moment who are you know asking me to do things for them with them um who are sort of well the, the whole business changed in the last decade or so the you know the, the model's broken we have to change this we've got to do this now um and it and it has changed a lot i mean obviously it's now being led very much by the streamers and things like that uh independent movies are, are a lot harder to come by uh, funding for independence are harder so although things are changing and maybe i'm not as on the cutting edge as i would have been you know 20 years ago there's there's always a way to do something there's always a way to break into it it just it's maybe different from when i started where it was lots of big features and the studios were making 25 30 features each a year now they're making you know 25 between them and they're all sort of you know marvel movies or or sequels or something else so you know there there are ways it's it's that determination keep keep pushing and the the beauty of today is you can make things an awful lot you filmmaking cameras that you know um gyroscopic heads everything's become so cheap in comparison you can go out and make a movie that would have cost you 30 million you know 15 20 years ago you can now go and make for three or four obviously not not with the same cast because the cast is where the majority of the expense goes in a, in a lot of these uh, situations but you do have that ability to create a great calling card for not very much and now with the software and everything else you know there's so many talented youngsters coming through that uh, i think the industry is changing very fast yeah absolutely excellent well thank you for joining us oh where can we like follow you to help support you in your new projects and stuff what would be the best way to you know i i i I was told I've been told for such a long time you need some social media I've ne- and I've never had anything and and uh, my assistant in um, in India uh literally a month or two ago said Nick I'm going to create an Instagram page for you and I said okay I just don't want to see it I don't want to hear about it but apparently I have an Instagram page now um and I know cuz he's asked me for some photos and things just to keep keep putting something up there occasionally so there is there is something out there um but that's about as far as I've I've never been a a big sort of sharing everything that I'm doing kind of guy so uh you know which which is to my detriment I must admit it's not the best not the best plan but um I I I've been fairly lucky anyway Excellent. Well, if I might make a suggestion, everybody go watch Outcast, uh Primal, mm-hmm. um support all the Bollywood movies coming out over the past couple of years. Let's see. Yeah. I have a couple of them written down here. Uh Manikarnika, The Queen of Janzi and Radhi Sharam. Uh yeah, just anything that with Nick Powell's name on it, go check it out. Don't <laughs> be disappointed. Pull up the Imdaba. Right. thank you thank you man the mummy everything i'm sure you still get residuals from a couple of them right <laughs> from a couple from a couple i mean we, you know it was early on with the mummies and things there was, there was not too many sag players in england it was uh you know we were we were british equity and uh the residuals on that side of things were very different from the sag it's uh yeah it's but but yes i do thank you excellent well when the next project uh comes out uh we'll keep in contact we'll yeah. uh Let us We'd know and we'll we'll let all of our fans know. 
Thank you so much. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day, Mr. Day. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Take care.